Dr. Scott Hahn is a former Presbyterian minister who was anti-Catholic. Now he is one of the leading evangelists for the Catholic Church in America. So what happened and what can his story teach us? This is Dive Deep. From the Diocese of Springfield in Illinois, this is Dive Deep, or we dive deep into our Catholic faith. I am Andrew Hansen coming to you from our Eucharistic Congress, October 28th from the BOS Center, and we are pleased to be joined by Dr. Scott Hahn, our featured speaker. Dr. Hahn, thank you for coming on Dive Deep. How are you? Welcome to Springfield. I'm doing great, and I certainly am grateful for the privilege of speaking here at this Eucharistic event. I mean, this is an amazing opportunity and a great privilege. The source and summit of our faith, the Holy Eucharist, it's gonna be an incredible day. So thank you for coming on because you are you have an incredible story, which I wanna get into in a little bit, because uh, as I mentioned on, on the top uh, before you got here, a former Presbyterian minister searching for something, landed on Catholicism, an amazing conversion story, which again, we'll get into in just a little bit. But I first wanna talk about being a convert because us lay Catholics can sometimes take for granted, uh, granted things about our Catholic faith. What do you think are some of the things lay Catholics underappreciate, maybe we do take for granted, that you as a convert have maybe a, a better understanding or, or maybe more appreciate than us lay Catholics who were born right out of the womb being Catholic in a sense? Right. Well, first of all, you know, as someone who teaches and studies theology, you know, an essential part of our job description is to make distinctions. But we distinguish not to separate, but to unite, but to show how the unity is there. And in this case, I'm a convert, and we I identify conversion in this case as someone who came from outside of the Catholic tradition, like I did, evangelical, Protestant, a Presbyterian pastor. And, you know, what I noticed in my journey was that ordinary Catholics didn't really understand Scripture very well. And since that was my primary focus and my own professional work and my personal passion, you know, that was something I set out to change. On the other hand, I would propose that every Catholic is a convert in the sense of baptismal regeneration, but even more. As I look back on my own Protestant experience, I would say that conversion for us was sort of like a past event, one and done. You know, what happened to me when I was turning 14 and getting out of juvenile delinquent behavior and finding Christ. But in entering into the Catholic faith, we don't have a doctrine of conversion, but we have a tradition that shows us that conversion is ongoing. It's lifelong. You are never fully converted. And if you were yesterday, you wake up today and you need to turn again to the Lord. And so what I would propose then is that every Catholic, whether they're converts or cradle Catholics, are called to conversion. And that that is the most exciting, it's also the most challenging, but it's also the most urgent task that we have as sons and daughters of God is to continu continually turn away from the world, the flesh and the devil and to discover that the sacred mysteries aren't just out of this world, they are in the world and they're more precious to us, they're more powerful than all of the armies and all of the missiles. And, and that's not religious rhetoric. I mean, that isn't exaggerating. That really is the truth if we would see things the way they really are. Now, of course, you travel the world meeting thousands of people every year. When it comes to what Catholics are doing right now, practicing Catholics, what are some habits you're seeing that, you know what, mm, we shouldn't be doing that? Or, or, you know, what are some things we're doing as Catholics that we need to sort of beef up, so to speak? 
Yeah, okay, so we're practicing Catholics, but as my mom said when she was uh, being hospitalized for the last year of her life, they don't call it practicing medicine for nothing, you know, because <laughs> we are practicing, you know. Practice makes perfect, but practice never stops. And I would say one of the things that we should do, it's a set of things that we ought to kind of adjust, and that is um, I think we ought to look carefully at how much cable news we're watching, how much we're caught up in the election cycles, how much, as Americans, we're grateful for our country, but how much we tend to reduce things that are happening in our world today to the political. When you give up on the spiritual and the metaphysical, you're left with the political. But we have things that go beyond the physical. And we have to recognize not only that there is a God and that Christ is the Lord of history, but that our lives have been scripted for something so much more than what we experience here in our country. And I would also say the same thing with regard to the Catholic ecclesiastical gossip, you know. Uh, no matter where you are, you find yourself in a kind of maelstrom where you hear all kinds of things about this, that, or the other thing. Your parish, your diocese, the Vatican, and so on. And it's, it's good to be informed, but it's bad to be distracted. And so I would say, you know, lift up your hearts and your minds to the truths that are true, whether you can see them or not. You know, when it's cloudy, rainy, stormy, you don't see the sun, but you know it's there. And as we're going through cultural storms, I think we have to really be more diligent, more disciplined, more intentional about daily prayer, scheduled prayer, where we are lifting up our minds and our hearts to realize that reality is so much more than what most of the people around us reduce it to. Now I wanna get into your story, um, Rome Sweet Home. That I read that book, it's awesome. It tell, shares your journey of you exploring, finding our faith, converting, of course, as well as, well as your wife, Kimberly. Uh, but I wanna, this one quote um, that when I was looking at the book and, and looking it up, it says, Scott Hahn was a Presbyterian minister, the top student of his seminary class, a brilliant script, uh, scripture scholar who was militantly anti-Catholic. Why, why were you anti-Catholic? I want to start there. Tell us what anti, I mean, that's, you know, it sounds kind of harsh for us Catholics and you were anti-Catholic, why? Well, well, Andrew, let me begin by tamping back a little bit about my own brilliance. You know, <laughs> if I didn't know me, I might be impressed, but I've known myself now for 65 years and I'm not that impressed. I have studied under some really brilliant men and I studied scripture and theology. And so I consider myself as a, a teacher of theology, not an expert, you know, as a Catholic, you look back on previous centuries and you realize that the, the saints and the doctors of the church were the real experts. I wanna be an echo chamber. But you know, anti-Catholic, uh, it wasn't for me, um, um, it wasn't bigotry, it wasn't cultural prejudice. I knew people, you know, who didn't like the Italians or the Irish or whatever, but for me, it was becoming a Christian, an evangelical, studying the Bible and being formed in the Protestant tradition, steeped in the writings of Luther and Calvin. And so for me, it was a simple matter of looking at what it is they worship, the Eucharist, a wafer. And if that's just a wafer, you know, it would almost be preferable to, to bow before a totem pole. Uh, it just struck me as being such a debased form of idolatry. And likewise, if you're not convinced from scripture and tradition about the truths of Marian doctrine and devotion, that can be, at least it was for me, appalling. You know, and so I, I, have, to, I have to thank God for his infinite humor, because now 
it seems to me that, you know, the Eucharist is Jesus Christ. It's not a sign that points to him. It is his resurrected, ascended, exalted body, blood, soul, and divinity. And that is just the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth of the gospel. And likewise, the Blessed Virgin Mary isn't just a figure or a statue or an icon. She is the mother of God. And Jesus has established her to be our mother too, a queen mother. It's like, this is, this goes beyond fantasy, but it's reality. I remember reading a story about when you were a minister, you were having a Bible study and you get to the Bread of Life discourse and you had to cancel the Bible study because you're reading this and you're trying to rectify at that point in your time, you're non-Catholic, but you're reading this and you're like, boy, something's here. <laughs> Take us to that moment. Is that, you're, you're talking about the Eucharist. Is that really the aha moment? I know you were looking through the Bible. You're like, just, I, I can't reconcile my non-Catholic self with the Bread of Life discourse in, in, the, in John's version. Yeah. I mean, what you're talking about was a Bible study, but even more, it was a class that I was teaching okay. in a seminary. <laughs> so I, it's a little more than a Bible study, <laughs> okay? <laughs> but I was teaching the Gospel of John for seminarians who were preparing for Protestant ministry, you know, ordination. And we were handling the Greek text, and I had already taken a graduate course myself in seminary from a brilliant professor, a Baptist, who had a doctorate from Harvard. And we had gone through the Greek text of John, but we had really skimped. We really skipped over the Bread of Life discourse. Uh, there are 21 chapters. I can, I can understand why a professor can't get to everything. But when I came to the Bread of Life discourse, and I noticed that this was occurring at the time of the Passover, as we read in John 6, verse 4, when he took the five loaves, the two fish, and multiplied and fed the 5,000 and filled the 12 baskets of leftovers, he uses that occasion in the synagogue there at Capernaum to give this bread of life discourse. And I had always been taught that this was figurative language, you know. But when you look at it closely in the Greek and you recognize that he changes the verb from eating in a figurative sense, like what's eating you, to eating in the sense of a literal mastication, chewing, munching, you know, and he doesn't just say it once, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. He says it a second time, a third time, and then finally the fourth time, that's when the shock begins to set in, you know, and you read about how many of those who had been following him left him. And he turned to the 12 and said, do you also wish to go away? And if he was only speaking figuratively, he could have called the crowds back and explained himself. In fact, he would have been morally obligated to do that. And likewise with the 12, you know, the 12 don't say, you know, they don't get it, but we do hold still, we'll, we'll chew your flesh. You know, it was shocking to them, but they trusted him. They assumed that he knew what he was talking about and he said what he meant and he meant what he said, and we'll figure it out later when he explains it to us. But I remember vividly, um, just getting stuck, you know, and looking up early church fathers to see what they had to say and realizing that there never was any real dissent. There was an interpretive consensus for the first five, six, seven, eight hundred years that I had not been taught. And so I had to be honest, it was humbling, it was humiliating, you know, but it, it sent me on a search for the church that taught the truth of what Jesus said in the Bread of Life discourse. and. You know, you find it in orthodoxy, you, fr you find it in 
certain aspects of the Anglican or the Lutheran tradition, but consistently and substantially, you find it at the very heart and the center of the Catholic Church and the Catholic tradition. Now, of course, you found that answer. <clears throat> you believe uh, that Jesus is present in the Holy Eucharist. But a few years ago, the Pew study that came out that said only 30% of Catholics believe what the Catholic Church teaches. You went through all this. You, you, you found out that what the church teaches is true. So what do you think has gone wrong that only 30% of Catholics actually Either, either they don't believe or maybe they, they just don't know. What, what has gone wrong? What do you think we can do as lay Catholics to help, you know, beef that up so, so Catholics do yeah. come back to the faith yeah. in great, great numbers? Great question, Andrew. I mean, first of all, I don't know much about surveys. And so I'm always a little leery of, you know, how do they ask the questions and all of that kind of thing. But I don't have any solid grounds for disbelieving the results of the Pew Research Center survey. Uh, in fact, when I came into the church back in 1986, uh, a different organization had a very similar study with nearly identical results. So from 1986 into the 21st century, you see a consistent pattern. Now at one level, you could say, well, that represents a significant failure in Catholic catechesis. But actually, I've been around long enough to recognize that's not exactly accurate. What it represents is a success of poor catechesis. And so at least an entire generation of Catholics were catechized very poorly in a way that led to 70% or so of Catholics saying that the Eucharist is sacred, but it's a sacred symbol. Well, I mean, I believed that when I was a Presbyterian pastor, you know, there wouldn't have been a reformation if that's really all there was. And so, I understand also the influence of a Protestant subculture upon Catholics who grow up alongside of evangelicals. But at the end of the day, this is exactly why the idea of an, a Eucharistic revival, a national Eucharistic revival for a year or two or three, but I mean, honestly, it should be for the rest of our lives. It should last for generations until it's 100% of Catholics who say, yeah, this is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings and he is here. And here we are at the Eucharistic Congress, doing that Eucharistic revival you mentioned about. Now I wanna talk about your talk, The Road to Emmaus, Cultivating Eucharistic Amazement. Now, I will admit, I have four boys, so sometimes when I go to Mass, you know, you're wrangling the kids and I go up to the Eucharist and I probably am not as devout as I should because your, your, your mind is spinning. How do we cultivate that amazement? Because it is truly amazing, it's Jesus truly present, but I think even lay Catholics who, who go to Mass sometimes it becomes routine and maybe it's not as amazing as it should be. So tell us about your talk today and how we can, when we do go to mass, have that sense of amazement every time. Yeah, well, I use the phrase Eucharistic amazement because I draw it from Pope St. John Paul II's last encyclical, uh, Ecclesia de Eucharistia, the Church of the Eucharist. And what he was calling for there was a, a doctrine, a vision of faith that was rooted in scripture and tradition but it was also meant to be renewed. What is it? Well, first stage is Eucharistic faith. We've got to make sure that people understand and believe the doctrine. The second is Eucharistic devotion, that if this is true and real, then we need to adjust our dials for personal life, for daily experience. And so dropping by to make a visit in your church or a nearby parish just to give our Lord greetings on the way home from work that kind of thing, or spending time in Eucharistic adoration. 
uh, or benediction. Uh, so it's not just Eucharistic faith, it's not just Eucharistic devotion. When you add up all of the things that we say we believe, it's amazing how unamazed we are. And so Eucharistic amazement isn't like conjuring up warm, fuzzy feelings or, you know, setting fire to the internal emotions so that we have pyrotechnics, fireworks. We're not kind of, you know, acting as though it's more exciting than it really is. We just recognize that in part, this is what human emotions are for. This is what spiritual devotion is about. And so if we're majoring on the majors and not on the minors, then once again, I think we ought to just kind of shift away from the news cycle and recognize that this is almost too good to be true, but it's the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth that we profess. And so deal with the, I mean, the distractions, the, uh, the routine, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's the way married couples live. That's the way families live. And so it isn't like God is up there looking down on us saying, how come they're not all worked up and on fire? But at the same time, I think if you step back and you say, okay, what did Jesus decide to do on his first day back from the dead? Well, I mean, I would have dropped in on Pontius Pilate, Caiaphas, you know, Herod, but he spends most of the day with two lowly laymen, Clopas and his friend, setting their hearts on fire so that they would say, were not our hearts burning within us? But he never disclosed his identity until the table at Emmaus, when he takes, he blesses, he breaks, and he gives. Then finally their eyes are opened, but he doesn't say, what took you so long? He vanishes because once he has brought them through the Old Testament into the new, like he does with us in the first half of mass, then he wants to bring our faith to the point where we grasp the reality of his presence. And if he had stuck around for a few more minutes, his own resurrected body might have proved to become a distraction to the Eucharistic mystery of his resurrected body, blood, soul, and divinity. And then they go back to Jerusalem. And what does Jesus decide to do on the second half of his first day back from the dead? Lead another Bible study with the 11. You know, and so you look at your to-do list, you compare it to Jesus, why does Jesus seem to have a case of misplaced priorities? You know, Easter Sunday, two extensive Bible studies, maybe we're the ones with misplaced priorities. And so in the mass, the liturgy of the word coordinates the old and the new, the same way Jesus did. And then in the liturgy of the Eucharist, you have the main event, you have the fulfillment and the climax. And so again, if we just adjust our dials, we'll realize God isn't asking anything of us other, other than what would be totally a reasonable, logical response to what we profess to be true. I want to get also back to your conversion story. Okay, we talked about the Eucharist, you just said, laid it all out, pretty clear, helped you have your conversion. What other things about Catholicism then when you were going through your research also convinced you? You think of the saints, think of you know the papal infallibility, were there all those other things where you're like, you know what, Catholics actually have this right. You know, you know, if you read Rome Sweet Home, or for that matter, if you read any of my books, and I think I'm somewhere north of 50 now, but in any case, you'll see that what is central in my thinking and in my writing and my teaching is what I believe to be central in sacred scripture and the living tradition of the church. And that is the notion of a covenant, that you've got old covenant and new, but the new is concealed in the old and the old is revealed and fulfilled in the new. So the new covenant isn't plan B. It's what God decreed from all eternity. But what is a covenant? Well, in my own Protestant formation, it was sort of like a contract, only very sacred and divine. 
a kind of do at death, a quid pro quo. You know, you accept Jesus into your heart as Savior and Lord, well, I will give you all of these graces that constitute salvation. But when you dive deeply into scripture, you realize that in ancient Israel, a contract exchanges property, but in a covenant, I am yours and you are mine. You enter into sacred kinship bonds, you enter into family that is more than biological or sociological. And so all of Israel was a nation, but the 12 tribes that formed the nation were also a family. So when they met at Sinai to renew the covenant, it was a family reunion as much of, more than it was a constitutional convention. And when you adjust that, you begin to realize, okay, that wasn't abolished when Christ came to establish the new. If anything, the national family becomes an international family. That's what Catholic means. And so God the Father sends the Son to pour out the Holy Spirit upon the Blessed Virgin Mary first and foremost to become the mother of God, then to become our mother. And then the idea that the saints are like older brothers and sisters it isn't like, you know, rhetoric. It is the reality of the fulfillment of the covenant that God the Father had from all eternity. So whatever God is, he's not creator ultimately, because that would make his identity dependent upon us. And the tail doesn't wag the dog. So the creatures don't define God's identity. Well, what does? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And when you realize that the Trinity is more than dogma, it's more than a mathematical abstraction, it points to the ultimate reality of who God is as a communion of three familial persons, then you realize, well, that alone explains everything that he does. And suddenly you have Mary and the saints and the angels and the sacraments and all of these feast days and the reading of the old fulfilled by the new and the Eucharist is a sacrifice first, but it's a meal second because that's where family comes from, sacrificial love, and then communion at the table. And it was just like, this almost seems too easy, you know? But once you realize you just push over the first domino of covenant as family, then suddenly it's like, man, all of this lines up. Excellent. I want to get you out on this one. So of course, as people of faith, we sometimes get into spiritual ruts. There's hardships, there's despair in our lives. What have you leaned on in our Catholic faith? What advice do you have for us? So when we do get in those spiritual ruts, even physical ruts or mental ruts, whatever may be going on in our lives where we fall into despair or lose hope, what should we be doing? What advice do you have for us? Well, I mean, there's a list of things that we can say, you know, prayers and devotions and that kind of thing. But multiplying devotions is not always helpful. Uh, so what I would speak, what I would say, I, I have to speak from my own personal experience here, not as a theology professor. Uh, I would say that the thing that appalled me the most about my grandmother, on the one hand, you know, she was a devout Catholic, very quiet, but she had a rosary. And when she died, they gave it to me. And I describe in this book, Hail Holy Queen, the Mother of God and the Word of God, how I, I tore it apart just feeling like I was liberating her from the chains of Catholic you superstition. Yeah, I, I took it to the basement so no, nobody would see me or hear me. And then she had the last laugh because, <laughs> you know, I remember at least a couple of years before I became a Catholic, somebody gave me a rosary, I don't know who, along with instructions, and I prayed it with certain intentions in mind, which I just kind of had almost given up on. And then God opened the doors and really led me through it and at the end, I realized what an ingrate. I prayed the rosary, I gave her these intentions. She answered and I forgot about it. So somewhere in 1984, I picked up those rosary beads 
and I made a pledge of gratitude. And the, the rosary has, for me, become my favorite prayer. It's what opened up the scriptures. I mean, not just saying the rosary, but meditating upon the mysteries, but not just meditating upon these mysteries as though you, you don't ever admit distractions. I am distracted all of the time, you know, but she's a mother. She's not going to say, harumph, you're distracted. You're not picturing me in your imagination. I'm out of here. No, a mother gives the strength of love to her children and their weaknesses. And so I especially love to pray the rosary in my weakness and discover how God's strength is made perfect in our weakness, but especially through a woman, a mother. Nothing, you know, Jesus said, if you wish to enter the kingdom, you must become like children. Well, nothing makes proud, sophisticated academics humble like praying the rosary. And so I have found over the years in talking to my colleagues that the thing that supernaturalizes our work is Our Lady. The Holy Spirit working through her and the sacraments, especially the Mass. But, you know, I, I think that so many people are just tempted to devalue the rosary when I would say reassess that. Some great advice. Dr. Hahn, thank you so much for coming here to speak our Eucharist at Congress, and thanks for coming on Dive Deep. Oh, Andrew, this has been a great time. Thanks for the conversation. You are so welcome. This has been Dive Deep. If you would like more podcasts, head on over to dio.org slash podcast. And until next time, we'll see you right here on Dive Deep.